Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So much of uh, what I received, I think, uh, about the Christian tradition was based in what I would guess what I would now sum up as an abstraction. What I mean by that is, is that you could go through. It's like, well, if you read through the Jewish, if you read through the Torah, if you read through the prophets, could you ever get from that without the benefit of reading like a Reformation polemic into that narrative that that was a works-based sort of, how could you get that from, how could you start at Genesis 1? And read through, you know, whatever it is, Malachi, or if you want to stop it, you know, the end of the Chronicles or whatever it was. It's like, how could you say, oh, well, the problem here is, you know, that that Israel has been invasive for all these years is that they've been trying to, um, you know, they thought that they were saved by works. And maybe, maybe that's maybe part of it is is that Saint Paul is saying, well, yeah, actually, they thought that they were saved by their ethnicity and their their works according to the law that they were saved according to circumcision or their um, you know their food laws or whatever. You could maybe get that from the text because you see that man, a lot of times this has turned into like kind of like a racist sort of uh, genocidal issue here with like one people othering you know everybody else or whatever. So I guess you could get that out of it. But just to leave that behind for a second, you could go through like all the doctrines. You could say, well, okay, but that seems like an abstraction there. In other words, the whole Jewish story abstracted from the actual narrative. You could go right to the cross and say, well, that seems like an abstraction because it's a, you know, it's a contract that exists in some divine ethereal realm that we don't have any access to where there's an exchange of um, wrath and uh, blood or well, however that works. Then you could say, well, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, that's that's really, you know, that's what's the funny thing is a lot of the, the people that they'll say, well, Jesus didn't mean that literally. It's like, that's the part that they want to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not saved by work, so we don't have to worry about that Sermon on the Mount. That's yeah, too not, much. You don't really have to love your enemies. You know, you don't really have to. Uh, Certainly you, not turn the other cheek. That's that's way overboard. That's crazy talk. That's just reading way too literally. In other words, like it's it's an abstraction of the Sermon on the, the The whole thing, like the ethics, in other words, becomes an abstraction. Justice becomes an abstraction because it's really justice in the mind of God between the Father and the Son evil becomes like a pure abstraction that now we have to deal in theories you know we can't do there's no real world sort of um confrontation with the powers because it's an abstract sort of thing that we could never it's all it takes place in the realm of ideas you know uh the church the church becomes an abstract, a total abstract now that because we're you know salvation becomes an abstraction it's like well we're going to heaven we're going to we're some other place and we're going to fly away uh, in other words like the whole the whole thing sort of becomes like, and, and what you're describing, I think, and what St. Paul's vision is, is the exact opposite of that. That it's incarnate. It's embodied, it's, yes. Embodied, it's incarnate. It's, it's theosis. And theosis just means the union of the divine. You know, so the split, if anything, you'd think in the Old Testament, you'd read through there and say, boy, there seems to be a division between the heavens and the earth or something. God and his people are always trying to come together. And, you know, they're trying to work that out through the story of, I don't know. It's like all that's lost. But what I think you're describing, uh, what I mean, all that's lost. We, we tend to speak in, uh, you know, hyperbole. But 
Um, I think that what you're describing, though, is it coming together. Whereas there's always, so when you talk about that dualism earlier, well, that's what a dualism always does. A dualism, Manichaeism, you know, Manichaeanism, whatever, all the different dualisms. It's always the, never the twain shall meet. It's a, there's two, there's two, you know, so it's, it's, you know, it's heaven and earth. It's matter and spirit. It's the infinite and finite. It's the eternal and the temporal. It's two, it's left and right. It's up and down. It's black and white. It's male and female. It's Greek yeah. and barbarian. It's, you know, all this stuff. It's all, that's what all that dualism means. Another means you only know the one in and through the other, good and evil. You know, you only know the good through the evil. You only know what evil is through the good. So all that, that's all dualism. And I think that what you're describing is, is that, well, that's just the human predicament that in Christ is being resolved because, of course, this, you know, spirit meets the flesh, you know, the uh, the the eternal meets the temporal, the infinite, you know, mm -hmm. comes into contact with the finite, heaven comes into contact with earth, the light can't, or the darkness can't comprehend the light. It's not that the, you know, it's just the light just totally, you know, shines its brilliance into the darkness and totally overcomes it. I, I really do think that I think that what makes Christianity like particularly unattractive for so many people is that it's like, what is this? This is like a total weird. It's an ab abstraction they don't need. It doesn't. It doesn't apply to anything. And everything. It doesn't, it doesn't even help with their quest for justice or the good. It can be yeah. sometimes. The, I think you can sum up what you just said in a very practical way. How do you love people? Well, you got to be there for them. In other words, there, uh, the love is inclusive of a kind of embodied presence for the other. What you're describing is a kind of disembodied Christianity. So if you had to say what the primary problem is, I don't think guilt gets it. I think that what is described in Genesis and what is being repeated in throughout Scripture, shame is this holistic, understanding and and what is shame what do you you know when you feel shame you just want to run and hide you can't you can't bear it none of us can endure prolonged shame and you cannot really love your neighbor if you're hiding and of course what we all do is create a facade that we would hide behind so that your description i think we can turn it around and suddenly what we're describing is a real-world embodied practical capacity, a, a practical salvation. That is, that we now have this capacity, and that's what the, well, I think that's what's happening with, with Abraham. So yeah, that's it. And if you had to say, if you had to describe what the Jewish problem is, I didn't really answer Matt's question. How would you describe what, you know, what is the failing of Judaism? It seems like the failing of Judaism was just its incompleteness in terms of revelation. Like Paul went from killing his neighbors, you know, the Christians are, you know, torturing, persecuting them, to then being in community with Gentiles and, and, and people that were different from him because of a complete revelation. Like he got the full dose of Jesus on the road to Damascus, right, in, in that vision. You know, and he he's, he uh, encountered Jesus in person, and of course, then uh, we understand he did later in the desert too, and, and was taught by him, and you know, could call himself an apostle because of that. The Judaism problem was 
incomplete revelation to some extent. I like least. that. I like that. That, in other words, when when Paul, the part of the thing, you know, when Paul is describing how what a great Jew he was, he also says, "I'm the worst, and I was the chief of sinners." Right. It's <laughs> an odd juxtaposition. But what made him the chief of sinners was precisely what he thinks made him a great Jew. So I think you're right that it, Judaism, they're taking it as a completion, as a as being, uh, having continuity within itself, so that the way that you're saved is you be a Jew. In other words, this is the new perspective understanding that uh, that Matt mentioned. You know, what? how are you a Jew? Well, you're circumcised, you keep the Sabbath, and you keep the food laws. All the things that Jesus, you know, is questioning and challenging. And those are things, that's what Paul means when he talks about works of the law. You know, Paul doesn't say, oh, we should, as, it's not like we don't do good works. No, he means that we're not saved by the works of circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and food laws. Those are the prime markers of Jewish ethnicity. When you think of the Jewish problem, you know, it is to reify, or as you're saying, a kind of incompleteness. But isn't that the human problem? Uh, did I tell you that I'm white? I'm a white guy from America. And, you know, we white people, you know, you could do this with any. Uh, well, I'm, sure. I'm, you know, I'm from Texas, actually. And I got a hat and a, some bel a belt. And, uh, that's a, that, in other words, we can take anything reify it, absolutize it, make it an identity. So I think the Jewish problem is the prototype of the human problem. In other words, that's just what Paul is explaining. It's not like Jews are more or less sinful. It's that Judaism is illustrative of the human problem and predicament. We would take what is incomplete and make it imagine that it's complete. So in Galatians, Paul will equate the Galatians slide back into keeping the law, and it specifically seems to have been circumcision, he will equate that with idolatry. Same thing, he said, that to reify the law is on the order of the reification of the idol. So I think that's just a type that now we've identified, you know, and this gets us into Walter Wink, this gets us into the very notion of what corporate evil is, what nationalism can do to us, what racism can do to us, or any kind of ism, you know, genderism. I, you know, I'm a man. I'm a man's man. You know, that can be that can be an identity. Yeah, I think you're right that it, there is an incompleteness that the Jews did by not recognizing the Messiah. They're absolutizing Judaism. They're absolutizing their ethnic markers, the temple, and all that goes with it. When I was talking earlier, I, of course, I'm not meaning to say that, like, you know, uh, the Jewish, you know, the Hebrew people were, like, you know, particularly racist or something like that. I was saying that, well, that's the human, the whole human predicament is being narrated from Genesis on. You talked about shame, hiding, blaming, scapegoating, all this stuff. It's like, it's all right there in the very beginning of the Bible, right? And then all that sort of, you know, results in murder and mayhem and, you know, genocide and racism and all the rest. But I'm just saying that humanity, apart from Christ, just keeps repeating that same sort of thing up into the present day where Christianity has, for at least from the 
the one that I sort of, um, you know, inherited was just conflated with a national identity. It was American, American exceptionalism that there were certain things, you know, you say the pledge, you do what, you know, you, in other words, it had its own sacred songs. It had its own sacred flag. It had its own saints. It had its own uh, holy uh, documents called the constitution and the declaration of independence. It had, you know, in other words, it's a whole, you can do that, but that's just what every nation does. That's what every people does. Cause that's who we are apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, I just want to make it clear that I wasn't like, you know, trying to be, you know, like pick on, like be anti-Semitic or whatever. I, I just think that if you ask me the same question, I would say that what's, you know, what Paul thinks is missing from the, from Judaism quite specifically is, is Jesus Christ. In other words, like the, the, what they're missing is how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Torah, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Christian, of the Israel's narrative, you know, all the, of the King of King David, you could go all the way through the whole narrative that, you know, that's what St. Paul, that's what origin, that's what the early father saw as what they were missing was what we have called in other classes, uh, like a mystical or spiritual or theological or Christian interpretation of the holy books that ends up killing uh, the Messiah. You know, that, that, you know, Jesus said, you guys have misunderstood, you don't understand the scriptures, <laughs> you know, and they're, they're going to, they're going to kill him. So that's, I think specifically the thing that Paul is sort of picking on that they're, that they're missing. I mean, he just says it in another place that there's a veil that's placed over even now, whenever more, whenever Moses is read, uh, you know, and that Christ removes that veil, but until Christ comes and removes, removes that veil, you can't read the Israel's, you know, story or the story of humanity rightly you need jesus christ to uh provide you know the grace of removing that veil um and to give you the proper sort of spiritual hermeneutic you know to rightly be able to interpret the whole of, rea of reality really i think is what paul's getting at and I, this is the the way that you're describing it i think it, the word law you know, when we use the word law, Paul's going to use that word in a way that we often get confused. Is he talking what law is he talking about? Well, of course, at some point it doesn't matter because Paul is saying that all people have the same problem and the Jewish orientation to the law is what all people do with ethnicity, with the symbolic order, with male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. Those are his examples. In other words, what we would do is create a dividing wall of hostility. What is that wall? It's the law. But that law isn't just a Jewish problem, it's the human problem. So, in that sense, Judaism is just an archetype, you know, a type of the, of the human predicament. And yeah, you're right. What displaces that wall of hostility is Jesus Christ. You, using the law that way, Paul, you're, you're kind of just, it's almost anything that's a substitute for Jesus, right? It is, and there's a kind of history here that I'm thinking, this can, I, let me talk about it in the broadest and most abstract way, which may not be helpful, and that is that we can do to language, and Paul almost talks this way, we can reify language we can reify human words and make of it a kind of entity or uh, conceptuality that is adequate in and of itself. So the symbolic order of language, 
that that is drawn out, I think, in the picture of the Jewish attitude toward the law. I, I do a lot with philosophy, not because I think philosophy mostly pro- doesn't provide insight. I think mostly it's illustrative of what we are just now saying. I think, therefore I am, Rene Descartes says. He reifies his thought. And so the reification of language is the philosophical example of this. But once you get that example, oh, you understand that the symbolic order, that may function at many levels. Matt put up a little note, you know, that we do this with our own ego. What is it? What is an ego? Well, we understand, you know, this is Paul's, it, it's actually just a good Greek word. It is a, a, a kind of reification of the image that we have of, of this is Lacanian psychoanalysis, that we reify the symbolic order. Yeah, we, we, we are idol makers. That's, what, that's just what we do. We reify things. We uh, absolutize. We live in an imminent frame, in the words of Charles Taylor, and we lose the transcendent order. And that's what secularism is. Secularism is just this reification of the imminent frame. And unfortunately, I think that Christianity is now secular. In other words, when we say secular, we often think, oh, those are people that don't practice religion. No, I think that the we've so reified the imminent frame that even Christianity now tends to be practiced in a kind of disenchanted universe. Just real quick, just to clarify, just because it could get easy to get lost. What is the eminent frame, and what do you mean by reification? Eminent frame is uh, the lack of transcendence. In terms of science, think of Newtonian science. He just, he says that time and space are absolute, and that that law, literally in Newtonian science, is absolute, such that even God cannot break the law. Isaac Newton was a good Anglican, but he says you know, that God can't break the law. God is subject to the law. So the imminent frame is where the the created becomes the equivalent of the creator. Reification is we take something that does not have substance, and we imagine that it's substantive. We do this daily, and money is the, the good example of this. We You know, what is money? Well, Bitcoin is a great illustration. Bitcoin is just an idea people have. There is no Bitcoin. It's a computer program, I guess. But that's true of all money. It's all just a, a thing that we reify. We know we're doing it, right? We know this dollar, this paper money is just a piece of paper, but we we invest it with a value that it does not have. And so to reify something is to make substantive that which is not, which actually does not have cannot bear the weight of that substance. So idolatry is, of course, the that's always what idolatry is. You take a piece of wood and you bow down to it. You say, "Oh, this is this is divine." But that you know, we just kind of invest everything with more weight than it should bear. And of course, the reason that we do this, and this is the fear of death. This is that we would make ourselves substantive. We would absolutize that which is subject to mortality and death and destruction, and that we would, in some way, that's our rescue. In terms of personality, we cannot live in a world of shame. And so to to make ourselves substantial, 
is almost a human necessity, right? I mean, uh, hey, I'm really somebody. That is the human. In a way, we we, we can't survive uh, without that substance. But of course, what we do is we create a facade of substance. We create a false substance that is, as the wisdom literature says, pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before shame. That's because our what we invest our pride in is going to fall apart. It's all subject to death, decay, and mortality. I was just joking earlier. When I, well, I wasn't joking because I actually really did this, but just a super quick um, detour. Whenever we first got on, I said I was reading about DMT and the machine elves and uh, and all that stuff. But it was actually related to what we're talking about right now, because what people who take it's uh you know diamethyl you know trip whatever it's you know it's a chemical it's a hallucinogenic it's very one of the most potent hallucinogenics in the on the planet. And what the people who have taken it have said is what they describe it as ego death. And what they mean by that is that whenever they use this. Um, they 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 have such a powerful psychedelic experience that they realize everything that you were just saying is true. That they're that that everything that they've created about themselves is like a is a fiction. That their ego is a is a lie. That uh, they you know it's a painful. They describe it as a as like a breakthrough experience, but that it's very it can be very painful. It can be scary. It can be devastating. It can life changing. They usually describe it though as that they come out on the other side a lot better off strangely enough you know that they actually have a gen they have an insight th about what you're talking about right now uh and they think man what am i doing i'm living for the money or whatever it is that they you know think about i think that we're talking about it in a theological and psychological you know what philosophical way which is great i, I love that conversation but i think that what you're describing you said that i'm going to do an abstraction but i don't um i think that for people who are really thinking about this uh, um, and even experimenting in very unconventional ways, I think that they're discovering what you're describing, that there's a reality to that you can you can try to create yourself and try to make something of yourself, quote unquote, but that that illusion can be quickly shattered by something like, you know, even like a psychedelic sort of experience, you know, that you just realize like, man, this is a fiction. This is a this isn't the real me. They describe that reality actually as being more real. It's very strange, that, and they've done lots of studies, you know, but that they describe that experience as being more real than their reality, which seems really counterintuitive, you know, but um, it, it's really interesting things happening. In the... To sort of back up a little bit, whenever you were talking about how the sort of the powers of the nations have been overthrown and, and stuff like that, that's hard to reconcile with the reality uh, that we find ourselves in, right? So I'm wondering if it's more, I, I guess I'm wondering like what your thoughts are on that. Like, does it, would you think of it more in like an Originian sense where, you know, I guess we don't want to like overly spiritualize these things, of course, right? But the origin pictures, the, the, the nations, the, the powers that exist in our hearts and our souls, that's that the Christ has come to overthrow, you know, those gods that reign over the various, you know, passions and things like this. And, and and perhaps also, you know, in the actual sort of Gentile nations. But I, I guess it's difficult to see how the, the resurrection of Christ has overthrown in this present age, like the powers of the of the nations or the gods of the nations or the uh, perhaps there's a, a recapitulation that's unfolding or incremental 
but perhaps not. I'll let you, I'll let you talk about it. Yeah. The obvious, and this is, I think why Walter Wink will be important that we engage the powers and we have the power. In other words, we're not just subject to the powers anymore. Prior to Christ, the reign of sin and death was such that we, in fact, were subject to the powers. The powers of the nations, that they were such that they exercised a power that was kind of irresistible. And what we're going to see is in Wink, but also in Paul, is this realized eschatology is that, well, now we understand the reign of death through the manipulation of the power of death through the resurrection and ascension of Christ means that we do, in fact, have power over sin, death, and evil. That is a real-world thing that somebody like Paul, who's going to have his head chopped off, or somebody like Origen, who's going to have his body stretched out on the rack, or somebody like Maximus, who's going to have his tongue torn out and his hand cut off. In other words, being a martyr, what they're thinking about being a witness to Christ in the face of death is a control over the powers. That a peaceable gospel, that that always for me sums it up, that one gospel is going to be a violent gospel. In other words, I think that's what we lose in Constantinianism, that there's going to be an endorsement by Augustine, but obviously by Constantine. We've got to do violence. But I think when we're talking about this reign over the power of death, it is the capacity for peace in the midst of violence. And that that capacity then is enabled through the the church, through the kingdom. That is, it's a corporate capacity. So that God's kingdom, the peaceable kingdom, reigns or rules over death. We reign at the right hand of God. And that's demonstrated with what we would do with the powers. The story of the Amish community, I want to say Nichols, someone came in and massacred a small school. Right, yeah, yeah. But the book was written by a non-Amish journalist who interviews people in the community over a period of time. What you just you were just talking about kind of resonated with that. Yeah, I know the incident you're talking about. The guy came in and shot all the kids in the school. Yeah. And then the Amish, uh, they paid for the guy's, then he shot himself, and they paid for the guy's funeral or yeah, something. Yeah. Just my mind is running. Participatory ontology of the gospel is nonviolence and us choosing to fight the powers in and through the love of the gospel proves that we actually are saved. Yeah, I think that's the way of saying it, that the, that the peace of Christ is the proof of Christ. I've actually done an article. I, that, that's an odd way f- that we don't normally put it this way. You know, usually when we talk about what are the proofs of Christianity, we want to, you know, have our apologetic arguments. But I think actually what the New Testament says, well, actually the proofs of Christianity are faithfulness, faith, love, hope. In other words, the the fruits of the Christ, Christianity are its proofs. And that's certainly true in the history of the church, that people are drawn into the church because of the strange practices of Christians. You know, they don't kill their babies. They don't do violence. They, they have all these strange things that they do that are themselves proofs in an odd sort of way. 
Well, I, I would just say going back to chapter one, verses three through 14, the blessed, well, we're blessed even though we're martyrs because we are raised seated in Christ. And yet, even though we endure and face tribulation and wrath of, of the principalities of the kingdoms of this world, we know that we have overcome them through the, the charisma, through the resurrection. And therefore, we can have, uh, we, we're the ones that have the blessed assurance and peace, even though we are being slaughtered and led like sheep to death. So I think that's something that we as just as Christians need to announce more often. This is the gospel. Yeah, this is a point that Wright makes, and I think it's a good one. You know, once you do a kind of Lutheran theology, you don't know what to do with resurrection. And resurrection becomes a kind of resurrection. That's like a proof. And what's meant is like an apologetic proof. Well, actually, no, resurrection is front and center in the defeat of evil. If we understand that sin is an orientation to death, that it's defeated in resurrection. So that resurrection, well, we might talk about it. In other words, it's a realized eschatology. It's a realization of the defeat of evil. So that it's organic with, there is a connectedness to this. Whereas in the typical Protestant understanding or Lutheran understanding, there's a kind of disconnectedness. We don't, yeah, that resurrection thing, it, it's, a good, it's, it's really good, but sure nice that Jesus could ascend, you know, and so we, we don't understand, no, this is the point of cosmic salvation, the defeat of evil, the reign over the, the principalities and powers pertains particularly to death and Satan's control of death. And that's very much there in Ephesians. I think, I think if people miss what you're saying here, it's almost like you miss Christianity. You know, I, I, that's how, I think that that's how kind of heavy what you're saying is. Because what I'm hearing you say is, is that what a participatory ontology just means in real simple terms is you actually got to do this thing. You actually have to not just talk about the resurrection as if it were some event in the past, it's a proof or some sort, but that you actually have to live it that you actually have to live a resurrected life, like you have to live a transfigured life, that the way that First John puts it, that the one claiming to abide in him ought to walk just as he walked. That's a high calling, you know? And so this is where the disconnect was with me. I remember reading the Sermon on the Mount and think, you know, back in, my, back in those days, whenever I was following, you know, Calvin and Luther and those guys and thinking, well, how come we don't talk like, we don't talk about loving your enemies. We don't talk about nonviolence. We don't follow this way. We talk more about sort of justification by faith or imputed righteousness and sort of um, concepts. Or even if I ask someone, how do I become a Christian? They might say, well, you know, you say this prayer and you believe these things. But what a Christian is, according to what you're saying though, is someone who actually participates in the life of Christ. And that must mean then that you're being in the world in a certain way that's contrary to the cosmos, because that's the way that Christ lived, right? And so that then brings with it all sorts of really hard stuff, you know, like an ethic, maybe it's an economics, a politics. Uh, I guess my sort of simple understanding of it is, is that 
if you're really trying to follow Jesus, which is what Christian means, right? You're like a little Christ, then this thing should be your whole life, right? It, it doesn't necessarily might mean that you get everything right or that you wake up every day and that you're, you know, perfect like Jesus was, but that your aim really is, though, to embody the teachings of the master. You know, it's not to just say, well, we believe all the right things and we're orthodox in that sense, but that we're really trying to participate in, an, in a kingdom of God that's very different than the nations and that's the way that the powers of the nations are overthrown because because they wield the power of death and of violence but we wield the you know the power of life and of love and of peace and so all those different things are like verbs you know loving peacemaking patience all these different things we we did the book on the patient ferment of the early church you know the habitus but that what you're describing here it's almost like a different version of Christianity than I think a lot of people, you know, we were talking yesterday about um, different people, how it's almost like it's understandable that they would be like, yeah, that's not for me. You know, the Christian thing's just not for me because what they think that means is something very different than what we're trying to articulate here right now. They yeah. probably look at that as some sort of otherworldly, maybe like political um, sort of associations and affinities and they don't see it as what we're talking about where it would be like loving the foreigner and peaceful you know peaceableness and loving your enemies and all this different things like that that is not the christianity that most people know and i'm afraid to end my little talk is that it's because of the disconnect that you're talking about that nominalism is just a fancy way as far as i'm can understand it of sort of um abstracting in, into sort of the symbolic, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but into sort of like the realm of the kind of ideas, mm-hmm. what pe- what the cross was about. It was this cosmic exchange, etc. You know, it's this it's this sort of contractual thing that's going on that's very removed from our actual lived reality. And but the, you're saying that no, that that's not that's not what it is at all. That's a total misunderstanding. That's a disconnect is the word that you used. But that gap that from that disconnect that you're talking about is the difference between i i i would think like a, a a christianity that's an actual an actually existing reality that actually does justice and makes peace and uh all this stuff you know cares about the earth you know stands up for righteousness all that stuff that's a, like a um a very different type of faith because and i think that you're just saying that the reason why that is is because there is we're not dealing in abstractions i think that as soon as christianity really you know to me boy once we start like dealing in abstractions we're probably getting it wrong i think that's it that's it the focus can be you know that's the problem of focusing on doctrine on propositions the letter becomes the thing and not to say not to just dismiss that but Unfortunately, that's the, I'm afraid, the shift that, yeah, you've said it well. The shift has been from a kind of engaged overcoming of the powers, a real-world defeat of the world, uh, the world's evil powers, a real-world righteousness, to a kind of legal fiction. That just, that contains all sorts of implications. Yeah, and not, I mean, once you say, I mean, a fiction, that's another word, that's another way of saying like a lie or something false. 
it's not real. So you said earlier in the beginning of the conversation about, you know, evil sort of seeming like it's, it has more power than just being a privation. And, and maybe that's true, but isn't that because it's false? Because it's like, you could look at, you could do the same thing with God and say, well, if you look at the world, you know, God doesn't seem real, but evil sure does. You see what I'm saying? So you could make that move. But as Christians, we're actually saying, no, actually the reality is peace, joy, love, all the, you know, Christ, uh, resurrection, all these different things. And that, that, that really is the true power and wisdom of God. Whereas evil, violence, all these different things, it, that's the matrix. That's the lie. That's the deception. That's death. That's the things that are passing away. But I'm afraid that, and I promise I'm going to end here so other people can talk, that I'm afraid that though that um, much of Christianity has sort of just been a part of, in, in many ways, whatever you want to call it, Christendom, but a part of that sort of fiction. And that's the reason why people who are smart, intelligent, you know, people who want to be spiritual or whatever, you know, they, they want to try to find God, but they kind of identify, I'm, I'm afraid, a lot of times, the faith, or at least of American Christianity, with this sort of fiction. Going to heaven when you die, yeah. I was just thinking about that with what Matt was saying. Uh, it's kind of what we were talking about it, uh, as far as the picture of Christianity that I got growing up it was a lot different than what I'm seeing here and coming into. So I'm sure I'm missing some references here and there and, and some terms, but overall, I, I think I'm with you guys. Well, most of us are having to, we're having to recover from the Christianity that we were steeped in. This is a, this is actually a recovery group. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. How many and, days you've been sober, Matt? Yeah, yeah. How many days have you been sober? That's right. I, I imbibe longer and harder than anybody. Uh, it can just entail a lot of pain that we don't need to that we don't need to have. And the spirit of Ephesians rightly understood the the practical implications of this just should immediately grip us. And so that's what we're focused on uh, throughout. You know, you and I were talking about this a little bit last night, but if you had to describe what is St. Paul's gospel in the book of Ephesians. And like, and, and then what's your vision? Cause this is where it's exciting to me. This would be an exciting kind of way to close the class. So, so like, you know, first of all, like what's Paul's your gospel there in Ephesians and like, what's, what do you draw from that uh, for your sort of uh, implications of what the true Christian vision is? That it is God's mission outreach to the world and, our incorporation into who Christ is in the church as a defeat of the, the powers, the principalities and powers through this incorporation. That's the chapter six, you know, putting on the full armor of Christ. We defeat the evil one. So it's God's mission, maybe if you wanted to say it in one sentence, which we join. God is on mission and we are too. Would we say that it's a maybe a problem at this point i mean not a huge problem but like a good question how does ephesians fit with galatians and romans not to not to pit them against each other but just noticing the characteristics and i noticed it too i, I like that description of uh, ephesians as a, a very dense pauline epistle just just really really packed tightly with the truths that are also in other other epistles, but 
arranged in a way too that it's clear. I like also what you just said about it being a universalization of the covenant. So my question is, I guess, would it be fair to say it might be a good question for the class or a project? How do, do these epistles fit together? If you had to sum up each one, like I think someone just said, the the uh, sort of the gospel essence in each epistle and then kind of compare them and see it. I mean, I think that's why Campbell's so important because of the, the timeline, the date, the dating of Ephesians as early does seem like it makes a difference. Yeah, it does. And, and of, of course, I don't think there's a conflict, but the difference is that Ephesians is a general, a letter maybe meant not just for one church, Campbell thinks, many people think it's for the Laodiceans that actually Ephesians has have nothing to do with it. And that Paul is imprisoned somewhere we don't know in the Lycus Valley, you know. Wright thinks he was imprisoned in Ephesians. Campbell, uh, he picks a, a town there in the Lycus Valley. But we don't know where he might be imprisoned. But the point is that he didn't know these people. And so he's just saying, here's my gospel. So if you go to Galatians, oh, he's dealing with the, the problem of Jew, Gentiles, the, the false teachers in Galatia. Romans, he's dealing with the same, you know, the Romans, Christians, the, the, the shift between Jew-dominated do house churches to Gentile. So there are specific problems that we know are there that Paul is addressing in these what we would call occasional letters whereas ephesians there's this you know to say uh, what's it about it's about paul's gospel in other words mm -hmm. it, it is just a summation of paul's gospel for a people who don't know and probably for uh, most people think they're gentile christians who have not met paul and that he's summarizing the gospel you know, what people do, they're going to overemphasize the difference. And those differences, once you read, you know, as you know, my reading of Romans is not a traditional Lutheran understanding, but Romans also, you know, chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, you're going to get very similar themes there. And so, too, throughout Paul's corpus, it's it's interwoven. Paul, would it be fair to, to say... Um that uh, Ephesians is, if we can understand Ephesians, we can kind of unlock Romans and Galatians. Another another person to throw out there, I'm, I'm preaching through Romans right now, and uh, I've been using Michael Gorman, and he he rejects the whole legal fiction as well. That That's the claim of the class, is that if we put Ephesians, not, you know, the, the date and all that is really just an affirmation of the theology and say we should read Paul's theology through Ephesians. This is the heart of his theology. Once you say that, then you're not going to get, you can't get the Lutheran gospel out of Ephesians. I don't think, I guess you could, but it'd be hard. Whereas Galatians and Romans, there's been so much perversion that has taken place with those books, with terms like righteousness, you know, justification, that we have the, these, this terminology has come to mean what Luther meant by it, and we've lost what Paul meant by it. 
But if we can put that terminology back in its proper context, I think that it actually will make sense of the Pauline corpus and make sense in a very different way. In a very early Christian origin, you know, this is why origin thinks Ephesians is central, because it is the, the originist themes are there that just we lose in the Western church and certainly by the Reformation. I have a question. I don't want to keep, I could talk about this stuff all night. So, and I don't know enough about, I don't think Lutheranism, Lutheranism, I guess, or Reformed theology. So you guys might be able to help me um, understand this, but I guess how, how would um, like a good Protestant thinker say, you know, with their whole idea of justification by faith, you know, justification, it means it has something to do with righteousness. So whether it's declared righteous or made righteous or, or whatever. But my question is, is like, how would a Lutheran say that we actually become, that we participate, that, and that the key word that you're using in like sort of in our being, would they think that like it's a her like a heresy? Because I, th I think that the way I think of it is, is that the way that we become, that the way that we participate in Christ is through becoming righteous or doing righteousness, right? That you, the, the, the way that you participate in the life of God is you do the things that Christ did, right? So righteousness, justice, whatever that might look like. Would a Lutheran say, no, it's like that you got to believe, you, you know, it's, it's faith. It's justification by faith. The way you participate in Christ is that you, how how do they do that? In other words, how do you become like, how do you become, because I think that what you're ultimately talking about is theosis, right? You're talking about, an, uh, you know, an ontological participation or a participatory ontology. Well, that's just a long way of saying deification or theosis or whatever, because what you're really talking about is being joined ontologically in our being with God. That's it. I'm sorry for the big words, but I, we have all this vocabulary, theosis, apocatastasis, apocatastasis, divinization, and then all of the vocabulary that you would also get in focused in on in the Western church, you know, the likeness of Christ that you can go through and talk about. And, and my point with all of that vocabulary is it all means the same thing. Apocatastasis, to make that some sort of unique word for Acts, Oh, that's just always what Paul's talking about. But he uses different words. And so when he uses the word likeness, or you, we walk with Christ, or we, you know, uh, in baptism, th that it's all apocatastasis. It's all recapitulation. Just pulling out a good, fun word. You were talking about dropping big words. That's one of the, you know, superlapsarian, infralapsarianism isn't that all tied to Calvinist theology and I just wanted to pretend I knew some big words, too. Oh. <laughs> I didn't want to leave Matt out in the cold thinking he was the only one. Well, I might can address what you said, Matt. I got a thought, but I wanted to first ask about Brant. I'm sorry, I, I wasn't here at the beginning. I, and, Paul, you said that he that, Paul, that Brant had uh, no prior indoctrination. I wondered what, what you meant cause about your background. Um, I, I didn't grow up with any uh, uh, faith in my life, I guess, I'd say. So coming from I the see. second cultural Christianity. Okay. Well, this must be a lot. <laughs> I was going to see if I could contribute to what Matt was asking. Hey, that's just a short, it's a, I can do it. I can ask another real short way. If what Paul is saying with apocatastasis means like that's just word, it's just a Greek word that means restoration. 
right? So apocatastasis, you know, ton panton is the restoration of all things. So what I guess what I'm asking another way to put it is, is that, well, the way that Paul is saying that we're restored or recapitulated or whatever is through theosis. In other words, like being joined to God in, in some way, whether it's through, and what I think I hear him saying is, is that the way that we do that is through what we become and the and the way that we become something is through what we do or don't do right so you know how do the do the how how would like the lutheran or the protestant answer like how, how does that work for them how are we restored or recapitulated or you know maybe they want to say justified like how yeah. is it by is it by like um sort of like a thought like right thinking or, or what is it well, what stands out in my mind as a as, with that very heavy in my background, you know, up through early college and well, just for a few years in my early twenties and most formative time of learning faith was it's a real it's a distinction, not necessarily a complete dichotomy, but it does break down between justification and sanctification. So justification, at least theoretically there is a way to receive, well, the imputed righteousness of Christ. And it's, it's the legal fiction part uh, where it's, it's declared. And it's like, it's based on what happened on the cross. And it was, you know, the satisfaction of theory of atonement and that it satisfied God's justice. So there's the legal aspect of it is, is clear, but the, the actual, change that takes place in regeneration that sort of helps you understand and sort of see things in terms of justification also sort of at least theoretically and they say you know if you're really truly saved it begins the process of that being worked into your life over time and that's sanctification the bearing of fruit so to kind of split things up like that i guess it's necessary uh because of the um but that you, you that, was, that, it, that was the key thing. I mean, to cut you off, but that's what makes you, that's not what makes you righteous though. Right. What makes you righteous is the declaration of God, not the actual uh, recapitulation of your life or, or like the sort of what they would call works. Is that right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. That's the way I would say it. And that's what I thought of. Uh, and the merits of it, I can't really, I don't want to speak to right now or feel, I mean, cause I, I know it was, useful for the time for me and it was like it's the way i understood it but i'm glad i moved on to kind of you know un understand it differently and to be more integrated uh to be more um apocalyptic <laughs> yeah so paul is that what you think though paul is what you're saying though is that the way we're actually made righteous or you know recapitulated or restored how does that happen for for St. Paul in Ephesians or in your understanding of things? First of all, he's always talking about Jesus. N.T. Wright points out, and I think that's right. The whole book is about Christ. And so the, the main topic is Christ. But in talking about Christ, he's not leaving us out of it. He's just saying that we then we are incorporated into Christ. If it's true of Christ, it's true of us. You know, this is kind of a, a bridge. I've always thought there is a kind of thing in Luther or Calvin, you know, they don't even, even faith. There, there can be a sense in which we gotta, we gotta have it. And they, they don't want to even say, they say, well, you know, even that is uh, something God gives you. 
I think that we're relieved that there is a, a, a kind of psychological stress that is put upon people in a, yeah, well, you know this, Matt, in certainly in Calvinism. The faith itself is something you're never sure that you have saving faith. We don't even have to worry about that. In other words, does Christ have saving faith? Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's faithful. <laughs> He's the faithful one. So it's his faith. You know, this is kind of Zizek's point, that we, we there is the sense that Christ does our faithfulness for us, not to say that we don't do it, but we really do it too. But of course, he's done it. It's something that we participate in him. The whole thing is not dependent upon, you know, it's unconditional. It's unconditional love. Matt S., I'm, I'm curious. I, I know that you're, you're kind of coming out of a Wesleyan background. I'm wondering how this resonates. It does. I'd say, I mean, to kind of circle back to Matt's question to add on to what Brian said, kind of from a, from a Methodist perspective, um, I would say, you know, the best of Luther would be, um, you know, his, his writing on the freedom of a Christian, in which you are confronted by the law as a mirror of your life to show how, how you are a sinner, and you're given Christ at the table and in the preaching and in the gospel to know that you have been justified before God, you know, through, through, through the cross. Um, and that opens you up then to the freedom of doing good works, not because you feel like you have to do them or need to do them, because the joy that Christ has brought, given you to the world, you get to do them. A good Methodist would say that both of those actions, both the justification and the declaration of your righteousness, and the later sanctification, that the, the good works brought by the joy of that justification are both God's grace acting in your life. They're, they're both the process of you being saved. So what Wesley's gonna, Wesley's gonna, in fact, Wesley really emphasizes the, that sanctification, that, that the doing the, of the good works is also, is, is God working in your life as well and continuing to save you. It's not a, it's not like an evangel evangelical or a, Calvinist, there's a point in time when you're saved, you know, by saying the prayer, it is, it is a working out through your life. Thank you both. That's, that's helpful. It's a good, it's a good uh, reminder. It, it can be very, I can see from the outside, like someone being like, man, that's really confusing. You, you, you know what I mean? It's like, how are we safe? Is it, and I think that what Paul is saying, Laxton, is that, and that's what Ephesians about is about, is that it's, it's Christ. And that's not to like reduce it. You know what I mean? It's to say that even the good, even the sanctification, which I do think, uh, or like our good works in some way, like, right, like sanctifies us, right? Like, isn't that how we are changed into the likeness of Christ is through participating in righteousness and justice and love and all those different things. But you're saying that for Wesley, which I love, um, that's the, even that is like the operative sort of grace in your life. In other words, it's Christ living through you, which is amazing. That's an amazing version of the gospel. That's a participatory ontology. So in other words, like I never even really thought about that. So it's like, it's not just us participating in Christ, but it's Christ participating uh, in us, right? It's like, we're the, I have died, you know, and, and Christ lives through me kind of thing. That's, that's really interesting. There's a Kenania and a, a sharing, you know, uh, I tell you what, talking about that participating in the life of Christ, 
I got up before the sun woke up too and started praying for a long time. And Matt, you probably would, you know, you probably do your Jesus prayers every day. And I did mine. And uh, man, I tell you what, it's easy to be a saint in the morning. It's hard to be a saint at, in the evening when you're tired and the kids are yelling. And I'm like, it's hard to keep participating in Jesus. I need a nap and I need more espresso. <laughs> Get those little brats out of here. I could be a Christian. <laughs> yeah. I, the, the orphanage is filling up. We need we need to send them away. But uh but but I but I do think, you know, that that sanctification process, it is it is transformative and it does make you different. But it's our willingness. I maybe I should say it like this it is the grace of God that intervenes and breaks through into our lives that even convicts us to become more like God and for us to even open ourselves up to himself. And so it's God who's operating and reaching out to us, you know, us and him and and then vice versa. Then we respond by the grace that he has already lavished on us. And then we participate in the life of God, prayer, almsgivings, love and charity etc but yeah when does that end i don't think it ever ends and once we once the new creations finally form through the resurrection we will we will continue in doing these acts of participatory life for all eternity so that is that is the good stuff that's the good news that it's just going to get better in time and the kids won't make you tired all right. Some of us are, yeah, some of us are tested more than others with the blessings of many children. <laughs> they make you tired in different ways when 10, 10 and 12, 15, 17 years later. Yeah, you got the worst to come, Austin. You, you haven't even started yet. <laughs> You're at the fun phase. <laughs> you guys are way better than me, man, because my dog gets on my nerves. I don't <laughs> All right. Well, it's been a, a good uh, inaugural class. All right. Nice to nice. meet everybody. Yeah. And we'll see you next week. Same time. Night. Good night. God bless you. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.